Hello and welcome back to season two of Not Safe for Publication. We are back after our summer hiatus. I'm Georgia. I'm Jess. And with us today is Jamie Farrington. Do you want to tell us a bit about your work? Hi guys, thanks for having me. So yes, so I'm Jamie. I'm a final year PhD in history and I work with the medical archives at Corvette Mill. Uh, and I'm looking at how 19th century medicine worked in Manchester and also in the rest of England, but specifically how it worked among mill communities, especially these paternalistic um, factory colony communities we have in Lancashire and, and across Cheshire today. So can you, first of all, just for our listeners, can you tell us what Quarry Bank Mill is? Yes, so Quarry Bank Mill today is a National Trust property. Um, it is located in the Style on the River Bolling, which is a very picturesque place to be. It's actually about, it's about one mile from Wilmslow and about seven to ten miles from Manchester. And it's right next to the airport. And the mill is a... The, one of the oldest, oldest working cotton mill. So it's still in operation today. It is a heritage site, but it still produces cotton. And it opened in 1784 and was actually owned by the Gregg family, who actually ran it continuously f- throughout the late 18th and 19th and across the 19th century, all the way up to about World War One slash two, when it started to actually start, um, decrease in trade before finally being sold off to the National Trust in the 1950s. Wow. Yeah, that was a very comprehensive... <laughs> that sounds like you've had some National Trust training when <laughs> you've given tours. Yeah. Uh, so your, product, your project works with sort of medical records mm-hmm. at the mill. Can you tell us a bit about what kind of sources you actually have available to you? Yeah, so interestingly, like, because it's a mill and obviously a business, some of the sources I first have are quite limiting. So it's all business business records, so everything's quite quantitative data. But one but one of the best sources we have are these two medical notebooks which span a 45-year period, which actually looks at the treatments of apprentice children across this time, normally every month or so. So we normally get about two treatments per month where, the mill, where a mill physician would come along and come and treat the apprentice children. Not the workers, just the apprentices. And the mill, and I said physician, and that's a really dangerous term to use because it's actually the people that were actually being employed by the Greggs were um, surgeons or apothecaries, so they wouldn't have actually referred to the as physicians because medicine at that time is very disparate. There's completely distinct categories, and we have to be careful what we when we actually talk about it. So, have you found anything that's been slightly like eye-opening and different from medicine today? One of the main things for me, and I say not going to say different because it, it because we do know that at this point in time, and oh, actually, you might not. In the early eighteenth to nineteenth century, it's very much a humoral system, so things are actually based on balancing of humours. So you have things like purgatives and emetics, which should be which should be used to actually purge the body, it's like, so to actually put it back to right. So how um, humours work? You have four main humours in the body: you have black bile, yellow bile, blood, and mm. it's that last one that I always forget. And phlegm. That, yeah, <laughs> no, lovely. <laughs> And all four of those are meant to be kept in check. And at this period, it's medicine is very much a very personal thing, and as it is today. But it's personal in the sense that you're not affected by an outside source. It's your own body 
um, fighting itself. So it's going to be an imbalance. So it might, you might have too much of a yellow bile, too much of black bile, and you have to purge that by getting rid of it. And this can be done through, like as, as I said, rheumatics and blistering, certain things such as senna tea. And if anyone's interested in senna, you can actually <laughs> buy senna tablets from Wilco's, as I learned yesterday. And you can still buy senna tea. You can still buy senna tea. So it's these it. are things that still work today and are still being used herbally. They're not actually going to be prescribed by a doctor, but you can go into any like into a big chain and actually buy them outright. Other than actually purgative, you also have things like blistering, and you actually have things like blistering agents. So like there's certain bugs, which when they're like certain beetles, when they're crushed up and put on the skin, it causes the skin to blister. And these are native to Britain, so you can still get them and access them. And and and, and you're surprised how common these are. But it's things you can actually find that actually sometimes come into the house, and they and they would have been used in the 18th to 19th century to actually just try, instead of actually like using something hot, which is also thing you actually would have actually put onto the skin, leave it for a couple of seconds and you would actually see the skin start to react and blister and that blister would believe to actually contain all the badness and then you would pop the blister and all the badness would go so everything we know today about how blister is actually a protective agent and you meant to actually keep it it was completely reversed back then i mean that is eye-opening is definitely the word <laughs> me and jess were looking at each other from across the desk and physically cringing oh, i'm just like well for me it's so weird that to think that, that was still going on i've got this idea in the 19th century that that is when we really started to Develop. It's really interesting because everyone is a, it's a common myth because the 19th century is when we actually see the scientific uprise. Well, exactly. But it's not until about the 1950s when we sort of see things people like Robert Cork and who actually found the bacillus, um, it's a tuber called bacillus, so the, the what caused tuberculosis. He was the first person that discovered that. It wasn't until about the 18th. 70s when that started to appear so it's quite late on like blistering also at that around that last period of time so things like washing your hands before actually going to do surgery before before about the 1870s 1860s nothing really happened it was still very much humor based so all our medical innovation that we have today and all the and different techniques which we actually refer back to and what can and what is actually in the past been quite that progressive wiggish history that we've actually moving away from now always link from that 18, uh, 1870s period onwards and and so we hop, so in in a way the 19th century is quite distinct to having these two very distinct parts so you, um the early 19th century which is still humor then the 19 um then the 1850s when things are starting to change like starting to change and like new and that's changing across the board with state with the states that in the goal and actually become a bit more spread out across the country and have more control you have public health starting to rise and even though this was still limited because it's state because it's based on this like laissez-faire government where to actually try and keep the the public out of, of like people's affairs, so it's very much private initiative. So this is why the slow process is happening there. But by the 1860s and 1870s, this is actually starting to develop and medicine's developing alongside it. So in a way, the entire medicine of the period is very political, um, politicised because of this reason. And you can sort of see the developments coinciding with this as well. Mm. So one of the things actually from what you were describing, so I sort of notoriously don't know anything that happened before 1914. <laughs> 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 you could have told me that people were still uh, blistering in like, I don't know, 1899 and I would have been like, yeah, sure. Um, but uh, one of the things I thought was interesting is that for these people, their access to medicine is through their employer. So it's, yes. uh, I know that obviously there wasn't sort of a, like a centralised idea of medicine and a doctor was a person who might come to your house and you would pay them, but 
the employer providing the medical care, was that sort of like protecting their investment in these children? Yeah, that's a very good point, yes, because it's, it's the idea of paternalism comes in here a lot. And it's a term that social historians are trying to actually move away from, but medical historians really like, <laughs> and they're actually fighting it. Uh, and when you actually see these sort of like mill owners such as the Greggs themselves, it was very much an investment. It was this belief that if you provided for your workers, you actually give them housing and education, um, access to actually garden space and food, they would be ha- happy to work them more productive. So it's always... So it was never off this benign sort of like, we actually want to take care of you. It was always thinking about their own, them as resources. And medicine really plays into it. And the Greggs were very interesting because they were the first ones to provide this medical service. This is in the mill. We have found early examples where other industries, I think, I think like, a, and I think this is in Scotland, like a steelwork in Scotland actually provided some sort, but, but those records have not been kept. While Cory Banks records are the earliest ones we still have in England. So that makes it quite, a unique story in itself um, but it's quite interesting even what you said there because the workers and the apprentices were different distinct groups and they all work at the same place and they've all been actually in the mill but you have to you can't think of them as being the same they would have interacted and would have coincided and lots of juxtaposition but when it comes to this sort of medical treatment and this medical provision they weren't the workers weren't being provided the same way that the apprentice children were and that kind of shows this difference in treatment the apprentice children were indentured mm. to the gregs they were basically property i'm not going to say slaves even though they're slaves because it's a, it's a different sort of system but imagine that sort of thing where they weren't being paid for the work they had to only get paid if they actually work overtime and that's normally a penny an hour but they got provided all their provisions for and for that for until the age of 21 when they actually were seen they've actually their identity being closed they were adults and they can actually move on by that point so the medicine here were being given to the apprentice children because they were coming in as untrained untrained workers and in a in a Foucauldian perspective of control you can maybe even say how these these workers these apprentice children these these docile bodies, basically, as a few people might say, were then being shaped and made into the workers that they wanted to become later on. So the Gregs were seeing them as an investment. From day one, it was actually protecting these people. And what we see that these apprentice children were actually staying on and becoming workers after they stopped. So, so the Gregs weren't about just getting apprentices and then letting them go. They wanted to train them up throughout and then actually sort of keep them on afterwards. And this is something we see in these factory colonies because they are very distinct communities, very isolated. Like it's a mile from Wimsor. It doesn't sound like a lot, but say you're working a 12-hour day, you're not going to be able to get... people. workers aren't going to be able to travel to Wimsor. They might get to Wimsor on one day a week. Normally they go to church there and back before the church started being properly built in style. So this distinction, this isolation meant that, for one, the Greggs had to ensure they had a workforce and they had to be able to attract the workforce so by bringing in the apprentice children it was easy for them to keep those apprentice children later on as workers mm-hmm. so you sort of created the family you created a community so this is where these apprentice children then developed on and some of them would have left but some of them would have gone on and go into the into the worker community and actually would have changed into a different sort of set as well, we see. Like, it, for me it's just like uh, <laughs> get them yes. while they're young like how children would just be able to until they're 21 as well it's a long time to yeah, just I, not be paid i wanted to ask how old children would be when they would start yes the grades were quite good they weren't starting children at the age of like six and seven which other mills were the gregs the youngest at the mill was around nine ten ish yes but at the same time there was 
these children are normally pauper children, so they were coming from workhouses and they came across the it came across like the northwest. They're coming from further fields, like some people being taken from London, mm-hmm. take, and and some did come from family, but quite a few came from pauper. And the, one of the main ways of actually testing um, an age of a child, see if a child is a worker's age, and it's really hard to tell you over camera, but you actually put you, if, if a child could put the hand arm of their head and actually touch the bottom of the ear with the hand. Yeah, you can't do that until you reach the age of seven. So what Jamie just did then is like he reached up to the ceiling and then curled his arm around and then what do you say touch the bottom of your earlobe? Bottom of your yeah. Until yeah. You, until you're about seven years old, you can't reach that. And oh, that is I just proportion of your head. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is <laughs> and that is how physicians and doctors and like all sorts of that period would actually would have tested for an age. Mm-hmm. Like, at the same time, that depends completely on development. So he's like, some children might develop quicker than others, and some children might have actually gone through a growth spurt and be taller. So that's where you might find people that don't have birth certificates being like, oh, you must be nine, when really they might be just a very young, oh, yeah, yeah a, a very advanced seven-year-old or something like that. But that is the technique that was going have been used. There's some interesting cases as well um, where we had like children's age being disputed. Where we had like certain children being like, I am this year, I am this many years old. I am say I'm 15 years old, and the Greg and the Greg's like, no, we tested, we actually tested you, and you're actually 13, and they would and and it's like because there was no record, so they knew their age, but they were being classed as younger because then the Greg's could keep them on for longer as well. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See what I mean? So it's sort of like they say capitalism at its best. It sort of like works quite well for the Greg's, but. If they found out the age was right, you no, know, they the child was right, and sometimes this did happen, um, they would have to actually respect that. That's really interesting. So I wanted to ask another question about these medical notebooks. So you mentioned it's from sort of regular mm-hmm. or semi-regular health checkups. Mm-hmm. Were the same notebooks used, say, if a child got an injury? Yes. No. So was there also sort of ad hoc medical treatment? It wasn't just the physician came by at these times no what it seems to be like these it seems like the vision was coming very regularly but it was coming to treat actual people becoming the um the apprentice were going to see him for actually like certain ailments and you sort of see how what is quite interesting where you actually have like injuries and like illnesses and you have people that have having like repeat mm. visitation so you might see like the majority about out, out of like the throughout the entire notebooks there's about 600 apprentices treated across the entire 45 year period and you sort of see about half of that only had one treatment mm. but then you see on the other end of it you have like one of the the first like one of the um, I say the first one 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 apprentice girl she had over fifty two treatments over a four year period so she was being seen a lot a lot more than might we might actually be seen go to see a doctor today. and do you know why um it was a recurring health issue it seems to be a chest problem uh, it probably it might have been consumption it might have been TB and it was just trying to actually sort of treat that she it disappears about in about eighteen twenty seven and that was and that and it sort of felt falls off then and I can't find any records about what happens to her at that point. Right. So she might have died, she might have gotten better. So we just can't say. But it's really interesting how what we can see is like this treat this girl was being treated repeatedly and when you have that long term condition, it's really interesting that the Greg's kept this girl on for such mm. a long time and actually like because 
she wasn't getting better and it's been four years and you can sort of see it's the same and it's not four years of different treatments it's four years that seem to be very specifically being focused on one area with lots of different types being used for that place so they were they, they, they were quite invested in her in that sense they were providing this treatment and 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 the budget she wasn't paying for it the gregs were paying a annual wage to um to the mill doctors to actually do it so it's quite interesting to see that relationship there have you so obviously you're using these books in relation to like healthcare mm-hmm. um because that's kind of what they're fundamentally about but yes. is are there any other mm. ways in which you can use these books to understand broader social changes for instance childhood um are there any other big themes apart from medical history that have come out well it's really interesting in a sense when and one question that i am actually quite interested in in looking at is trying to actually understand so we have these 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 books that actually look at particularly child what we would class as children but but that's also means we have to consider what our definition of child is really yeah. because when we look at children we, we think in the modern day we actually think of something to be nurtured something to be protected something that and someone up to the age of 18 is still a child in this country while other countries that differs a bit but that 18, by 18 you're seen as being quite responsible and adult themselves while in this case it's these children, the, the, the apprentice children, it'd be 21 is when they actually come outside. So at that period actually extends a bit further, but at the same time, they are child workers. So the word child still stays with them, but the worker status remains and is more important there. So they're not being, and it's trying to understand whether they're being treated at this age of nine, because what is quite interesting, like a lot of like childhood illnesses that we sort of see in childhood development happen beforehand, before coming to the mill. So a lot of like long-term conditions that may be seen in these books happened from birth and from like management and other types of um, vitamin deficiency that actually happened before actually coming. So we have the, the things like rickets. Rickets, so we've been bringing them with them. So it's quite interesting to see how um, at the mill these are being used, how these sort of like how the children are developing and how children are developing into the adulthood. And then we can actually even use it to compare how um, the development stage from like um, pre-bescent to pre-bescent to actual adult actually mm. happen at the mill yeah. compared to elsewhere because you, there's this common um, common belief that Coibank was a better place so it had better health had better care than other mills across manchester and it's something that i am having to question a lot because it's a point of view that you see all the time because it's quite it's quite a nice history and i'm having <laughs> to question that nice history to see like is this true and i don't argue at all that Coibank was this worst place because it's not but i believe that the idea that it was the best place is a bit of a fallacy and you need to actually really question that and actually think it might be better but how is it better compared to other places and and how are these children developing and are these children becoming healthy adults or are they, or are they actually still pretty much unhealthy adults but have actually had a better chance than other children developing outside of Coibank mm. and in Manchester and in for Manchester say as the industrial town I think that's so interesting what you said about... So I think we've all come... I came to my area because I wanted to study friendship. So for me, it was like, yeah, I wanted it to be a, a nice history. And I've just been confronted just like that it actually is not very nice. Or if there is friendship, it's come about through really sad things because I look a lot at urban deprivation. So it's funny that we come into a subject wanting it to be really nice. Mm-hmm. And then you're confronted with all these things which are not very nice. Mm-hmm. Def- definitely. And I think... 
what I quite like about history and what I've always liked about history is that it's a study of real, it's a, it's a real people's past. So how people are so much like, each day is different. You know, you can have you can have one good day and one bad day, and even and and this is true to life today. But it's quite interesting trying to try and get those stories because, like from my mill and for places like this, these are stories that even though then it's a national national trust property and these story and people actually do know about a lot about them, it is still very much like it's the Greg story because they're the ones that are leaving most of the records. Yeah. So how do you get the people that aren't leaving? So these 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 doctor's notebooks provide a snippet of into the lives of the apprentice children not as just not from like the Greg, what the greg's saying about them but from what the apprentice children themselves they become agents they actually have it's their bodies and they're the ones that are ill and they're the ones that are actually having to actually make this step and actually be examined so this is very much quite personal to them so you actually sort of see a bit of person uh, a personality of what's happening to these children at this time rather than what someone else is saying about these children isn't it's examination of what's happening and the fact that they've gone to this to to, the, to to these doctors in the first place says quite a lot because if we think about the Gregs as a business and think about how um like how like built mill owners are it's important for the children to be healthy because if they can be are they, are they, if the, they are believed not to be healthy they could get rid of them and so it might be the case where these children are probably trying to seem healthier than they are at times as well to try to actually convince the physician and the doctors that they should be kept on so you can sort of see this relationship the relationality between the children and also the adult doctors and also the Gregs as they try to um, figure out and actually co figure out the world around them and actually work out and, and navigate through life in the setting which they've been provided for, which I think is a very important point at my mill. The other thing that we like to talk about on the podcast is just sort of the experience of PhD life and we try and ask each researcher about something that's kind of unique to their experience. So the thing I was thinking about asking you about is just, so I know that your supervisory team is split between uh, historians and mm -hmm. a scientist. So I wanted to sort of get your perspective on what it's like having a supervisory team that maybe have quite different goals and ambitions for your work. Yeah, it's really interesting because what and you're saying about my supervisor, it actually goes a bit further because I also have National Trust that sits in. So at times when my when my panel's about five people big, where I am the sixth person. <laughs> so like everyone has something else they want from me. Sheena's really Sheena, who is my second supervisor and is also an immunologist, she is really useful because she brings in this science aspect which I just don't have. So when I actually I can take these databases, the database I produce and we can have a chat together, we sit down and we look at the different sort of topics that are happening within it and we can actually look at it from a very hard science point of view. And because of have because of Sheena, yeah, I'm also part of Sheena's lab group. So I have so which means that I have access to a range of very very hard science, sciencey scientists. Um, <laughs> I, I, I might be the term. They probably won't like that term, but let's go for it. And hard sciencey scientists. Hard sciencey scientists <laughs> who look at things like uh, like different things like immunology. They have like they look at things like poo and pus, and actually do a lot of things like that. And I get to go around that lab sometimes and see people messing about with both of them, which is pretty grim sometimes, but it's pretty exciting as well. And they have completely different views. Because one thing that is different because they see the they see the actual science behind my work while when I go and see Anna who's my first supervisor um, she sees the social part of it and how these social stories will be navigated so I have so I get to actually include both of them 
and actually sort of interweave them a bit, which is, and in a chapter I've briefly written, some of the feedback that came was Sheena wanted a bit more science in there because she had some really good ideas about how these sort of things would have been spread and how and how it would have been affected and how things that would happen today because she wants to see how these sort of things would have been quite useful for her own research. So how can these 19th century treatments be can be reimplied and actually reused today, which is quite, I think, quite, quite nice, quite nice way to bring about it. It's hard because it's also dependent on your personal and political standpoint, like... I believe that healthcare is such a personal and social thing Mm -hmm. and if you look at, especially if you come from a feminist perspective, which I always do, healthcare has been dictated by, you know, men in white coats and it it can't be so easily done, like in the history sense, it can't just be done through that data heavy approach. But I don't know, I speak maybe on behalf of me and Georgia, I'm just so used to not dealing with numbers <laughs> and as I, I'm way more about the social so I would definitely be on Anna's side in that regard yes. Anna, sorry. I was going to say I think that um, the thing that's most interesting about your project is perhaps finding not only that balance between the kind of what we could call the Sheena perspective and the Anna perspective but for me it's kind of about asserting the Jamie perspective right? Definitely mm-hmm. yes so like trying to make your own voice in there and in a way as I think most PhD people find as you get further on into the actual PhD, you become the expert. And even though your yeah. supervisors may have the qualifications, they may have the titles, when it comes to your topic, you're the one that knows about it and you're the one that can actually f- throw things out. Oh, okay, because I have the National Trust inside, they are very happy to actually like tell me when I'm wrong very <laughs> quickly because obviously they have been looking at me for like 50, 60 years now. Um, so... Um, collectively, but at the same, but it's quite nice to be able to be like this. No, this is what I'm seeing. How this sort of links here, and I always bring it back to the social because I, again, I am historian. primarily I'm not a scientist, and I never try. I've never tried to be a scientist because I would fail <laughs> very dramatically, and like with arm failing sort of <laughs> fail. So that's that's how I can imagine it going. I guess you've got like also that double imposter syndrome of like not only historians saying you're wrong, but you've also yes. got scientists coming I'm, in being like I'm what having, you're saying is crap. I'm having to give an hour-long presentation next uh, next week to Anna, um, Anna's Sheena's lab group, which is always very fun because they sit uh, because obviously the scientists they don't really under, they don't fully get the history behind it, so I have to I can so I have to be really careful and go into actually going into the theory side of it because it becomes either they really enjoy it because they like the topic or they just don't understand what I'm saying to them because they don't actually have the background to do so. So it's always that navigating this fine line about it becomes a bit like public history in a way because I have to actually sort of point to an audience that are exceptionally smart but but don't have the training to actually deal with it. So I have to actually approach it as if they're people like people that come to like males like kids yeah yeah a little bit <laughs> um, but in a nice way because obviously when, I, when they actually talk to me though they have very intelligent responses and they ask me about the science and i'm like uh, I, don't, I don't i don't know i don't know what this sort of like bacillus is or like what sort of like what the what the, what the gene chain would have been at, amongst these children she's always quite a fun topic would you say you had any advice for someone, say, who was a bit earlier on in their PhD and who is struggling to establish their voice with their supervisors? It's, this, is, it's, this is quite a personal one in a way, because 
it is really easy because one thing that when I first came to it, it was it, I was a bit nervous. I was kind of like, how do I establish a voice surrounded by people that really know what they're talking about? Because I came from a different field altogether. I came from archaeology. So I actually didn't do any 19th century history before starting the PhD. So I had to, I actually self taught everything from the beginning. So, so, it, so your MA was in archaeology as well? Yeah, in archaeology, oh, wow. yes. That is amazing. So, oh. I, so I spent that. I, I met you, Georgia, actually, during my first year in my PhD, because I actually went along to some of the system. I, I always did some lessons, because I was like, you don't have any background in medical history. Let's sort of, like, give you a very fast course. So I had to learn 19th century history in, like, two months, which was fine. I got there. Uh, and now I had to actually crack the... Uh, so it was kind of like... So it was very daunting. I thought, like, there were many times where I thought, am I actually meant to be here? Can I actually do this? And it was just and it kind of like... Rely on your supervisors, you know, tell them you're struggling because sometimes um, and they will actually help you and support you and then your voice will come through there because as you spend more time with them and as they see you, they will support you in the way that they like, maybe you should be doing this and that and then after a while you start to say, I know, I actually can do this myself, I am getting the opportunity and, I, and they want to listen to me speak and then you can actually sort of, be, at least with my opinion, your opinions start to come through because you read more and eventually... And eventually your, everything sort of happens where it's kind of like, I actually do know what I'm talking about now. I am not just sort of like hoping for the best, crossing my fingers and actually being like hoping to run away at the end. I actually now am grounded and the work is actually coming through. It's so impressive what the mind can do in terms of, yeah, you coming from that non-history background, like likewise with Georgia doing a BA in history of art. I just couldn't imagine, I feel obviously you can develop these skills fairly quickly, but I can't imagine having gone into a PhD not knowing any of the sort of skills that are required. Obviously, there's the working with primary sources, but the... Mm -hmm. Just a secondary literature. Just a secondary stuff. literature, yeah, because with archaeology, I, I assume it's, it can be quite science It can be. Archaeology is actually one of those ones that really fits in that social science line, really, where it can be very science or it can be very social, depending on where you go. Luckily, I came from Manchester. I've been in Manchester for most of it, and Manchester is very much a BA in archaeology, so, oh, it, really? so it was a humanities base. But uh, what archaeology prepared me for at Croy, with the data at Croybank is that they deal with very big data sets. And, Croy, and my data set I actually have created for the mill is actually now about three to five thousand entries long of actual notes which is seems to be quite big in history yeah but people in archaeology it's tiny and they don't think they have enough data to actually deal with it mm -hmm. so i'm actually kind of like well they deal with like 15 to 20 000 data sets so i actually so i'm kind of like so i actually don't think my data is actually bigger oh i think i have nothing but i'm like jamie you have too much from this angle mm -hmm. so it's quite an interest so it's a different way of looking at it so i'm able to actually deal with data very quickly and very and very quite efficiently because it's just something i've been trained to do now for for a good four to five years beforehand yeah. so that was one benefit of actually having the archaeology but it was the not knowing the literature that was kind of like how the arguments are quite interesting like um the first thing that i came for the door was foucault and porter i had to actually yeah yeah <laughs> and porter was everywhere you can't you can't escape porter you can't escape foucault either but port, but in medical history porter, yeah you can't yeah, you, don't, yeah. you don't if you don't say porter's name in medical history i think your phd is just thrown out instantly because i think he's just so prolific and so well established roy porter roy porter yeah but well, he doesn't look at i remember looking at him and because i looked at women who spoke about their illnesses with other women mm -hmm. and he doesn't look at he, he's quite top down isn't he 
can be. Yeah. But at the same time, he's also the one that was like, he's the first person to write um, the History From Below article. So he was like, patients oh, have really? a voice. That was him, yeah. And that's why, he's, that's his main accreditation. And he was the first person to be like, you know what, we should look at patients as being not just objects in the medical relationship, but actually having like active voice in the medical relationship. No one else before him. People did in probably other fields, but no no historian properly looked at that. Mm. It was very much like, um, it was always the doctor's viewpoint and how medical can progress, and he sort of flipped on his head. Right, right. So I think what, because I remember criticising him in some way, maybe it was more not using not using those patient voices to understand other things, which I think was my interest. I was interested in religion. Pro- yes. But yeah, I, think but that, I think, yeah, he, he was very much medical, uh, medical history through and through. Are you really gifted at paleography now? Well, I won't go that far. <laughs> uh, I'm not too bad, but it's not, but it's a it's still it's still a learning curve. And I would say that I I think I'll always be learning with this one because it's not something that comes naturally with me. One thing I did have to learn though, for with the archives and my collections, was the fact that my notebooks were in obviously it was in the 19th century doctor handwriting scroll, which is always pretty awful to read anyway. But you also use a shorthand. Oh. And that shorthand, no one had to crow for it. Someone cracked the code in the late 1950s, um, then he died and took him with him, basically. Oh, so that never got recorded anywhere. I had like one page of his notes, mm. and I had to use that to then translate and actually break the code for the entire 45 years of books to do that's it. Amazing. That's like cracking Ann Lister's diary, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I, incredible. I did that. I had to do that in a very short period of time because it was very important that I had the research for a chapter I had to write. So, so motivation, you know, Um, put under pressure. So the last thing that we ask each of our guests to do on the podcast is just to share um, a funny story or a funny moment from their research. Okay, Okay. this is quite a, it's a fun, it's a funny one, but it's kind of like, but, Precumbers of pre-warning. So, part of my pre-work includes quite a lot of public engagement with the National Trust. And last October, for the half-term events, because it's like towards Halloween, we did we decided to actually do a... Uh, we put on a show where we actually dressed up one of the mill doctors, the main mill doctor, Peter Holland. We, we, we got one of the... Um, public program people to dress up as Holland. He was an actor beforehand. We gave we, we wrote him a script and we gave him lots of objects and we did like these five to ten minute sessions where he would actually retreat the children that came in. So mm. these children would come in and he would answer the parents as well. So he gave the entire show where he pretend to treatment and he had like a hacksaw and actually showing things that he could do. Some of it went very off top like because I wouldn't Holland wouldn't do that but they made it a bit more dramatised to yeah. actually make it more interesting. Yeah and in during this week it, there was two examples where it, he, I didn't know about this in advance but in the mail records one of the one of the apprentice girls lost an eye yeah so what this person did he actually had a fake eyeball in a box <laughs> covered in fake blood and he opened it and, and he would show the people at the end of the talk and all the kids were stood up looking at this eyeball and this is the Thing, yeah, so he was actually doing a thing, yeah, and he gets to the end of it and he opens the box, yeah, and like one kid just looks at it and then just his eye rolled back, yeah, and he just faints <laughs> fully down. And then, but and then he's just on his back, yeah, and I, I clear the room and like, Jamie, you're becoming a doctor, can you help him? And he's kind of like, not that type of doctor. <laughs> uh, I look at medicine. I don't. I don't treat people. So I'm just there. Like I had to go and guard yeah, the. You're fun- smelling salts. 
Yeah, in the end, they made me guard the room, so I had to actually stop people coming in there. So I actually became like the bodyguard, so people who could become this guy with fainting on the ground. And that was one of two people that fainted. <gasps> Yeah, oh yeah. my god. <laughs> so after the first one, they didn't like cut and stone do the eyeballs thing. In the end, they thought, okay, what we should do, we should sit him down so they don't fall because the guy, because he fainted and actually kind of hurt himself a bit. Oh. So it was a bit of a shame, but it was kind of, like, but it was the, but it was just the, the first one was actually kind of funny because he actually saw the funny side of it. But it's kind of like, it should have actually been a thing, but it was just a weird thing because I told them not to do it and they went ahead with it and this is oh. what happened. So it was, it was funny in a weird way because the kid wasn't hurt. The kid, the kid was fine but it was sort of like but i think it was just a bit dazed that it happened and it kind of like it happened twice yeah yeah it's one of those things that is a lot funnier in retrospect like yeah, yeah, yeah. watching people fall over at the time not funny but when you watch it on a video yes it's hilarious. <laughs> that little bit of separate yeah <laughs> see seeing poor the poor guy's face you know the person that was playing holland because he was kind of like he was mortified oh, <laughs> but he did it again, he did it again. <laughs> Bless There's him. no way this is going to happen twice, and the eyeball bit is too good to lose. Yes. So, what's been like your favourite? So, you're in your third year now. Yes. What's been your favourite year? I know of one of two and a half, I guess. Mm. Um, it was my favourite year would have been last year. My first year was a bit of a learning experience and I think people say like the first year is normally kind of easier because you're just actually learning about it. You try to do it. You try to actually learn the literature. But for me, it was a it was not the best experience because obviously I was trying to navigate a whole new field, but also being like, I didn't feel like this, I didn't understand where the sport was there at the time. You know, I had to actually navigate two new people that I've not met, two supervisors that I was trying to actually create a relationship with and also other issues, personal issues in my own life, which actually caused that to be quite a hard period. But it came, but coming to my second year, that became a much nicer time because then I actually I actually knew what I was doing a bit more. And I started to become more engaged with things in like in the school. I started doing a lot more like the National Trust themselves, but things like the pick up there too. The archive reopened it was shut for the first eight months oh, of my wow. PhD, which actually caused some issues. <laughs> and I was kind of like a lot more engaged by that point because I actually had that bit more of a positive voice. Then, but by the time we got to, and then. During it, I actually started to actually meet more people across the department and things, and that is actually really, really helped. I got, I got, I started doing a bit of the departmental seminar series and actually started to talk to people, and that was, not, and that was nice. It was nice to have a bit of community. And now, me and you are both running the PGR seminar series, which yeah. has been really fun. That's how I've got to know you. It's enjoyable. It's, it's been, a, it's been a fun time. It's been great, and it's great working with you. <laughs> you too. I don't like anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Jamie, thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been really interesting to learn more about your research. I learned some serious yeah, things no, today. Yeah, no, I, like, I, the humoral thing, I thought that died off with the Reformation. Mm. So, <laughs> <laughs> It's really interesting. It's so, it's a big belief that it's, quite, no, it's right into the 19th century that it's still going. Maybe it's due for a comeback. You know how sort of believing the Earth is flat or not? Yeah, you know, Freddie back. Flintoff believes that the Earth is flat. You know, the cricket player. Really? Maybe that helps his cricket. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, his bar won't curve. <laughs> just goes straight. <laughs> cool. uh, so, yeah, all that uh, is left to say is thank you for being our guest. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great mm. to be here. Uh, and Jess, thank you for uh, co-hosting. No worries. Mm-hmm. And we'll see you next time on Not Safe for Publication. Until then, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast made by and for humanities researchers at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter, 
at nsfppodcast or get in touch with us by email at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicon.